Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, what is sure to be your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast. Uh, I am TJ West, your co-host, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Bridget Keys. Hi, everybody. And we are so pleased to be able to share our our passionate love for Angela Lansbury and Jessica Fletcher with each and every one of you. So in our first episode, we're going to start hitting the ground running. And we're first thing we're going to do is a 15 word or less summary of the episode, which we will do every week to kind of a little bit of fun, really. We like to keep things a little loose here at uh, the Cabot Cove Gazette. We're small town folk, so we just like to keep things, you know, informal or at least one of us is a small town person we'll see anyway so i'll be the first uh, 15 word or less summary so let's see how would i want to do this widow becomes author gets ensnared in suspicious murder several people die heartbreak ensues i think that's about 15 words <laughs> that's about the 15. biggest summary and yet also startlingly accurate <laughs> Uh, well, I do this with another podcast that I that I host, and I'm actually proven to be very adept at coming up with very short, pithy summaries of TVs and movies. So, I'm not very brilliant about some things, but I am a good summarizer. So, so oh, you for, you did, you left out mistaken identity, though. Mistaken identity. I did is forget mis- right. So important to this one and to the next episode in this series. Um, it, yes, it is true. So. Uh, to give our audiences a little bit more of a, a summary of the whole episode, just to, so they know the sort of broad contours. This is where we first meet Jessica Fletcher, who has her first murder novel published by her nephew behind her back, basically. Then Grady! Gets, everybody's Grady, favorite nephew. Yes. Everyone's favorite TV nephew, who uh, she then goes to New York City and has all these things, goes to a costume party with a publisher. Obviously, realism is not a real interest at this a realistic portrait of publishing is not a huge emphasis for this show at this point um then it turns out someone is murdered but it turns out he was murdered quote unquote by mistake and it was actually someone else who was supposed to be murdered everything winds up this is a spoiler that it's actually her soon-to-be boyfriend publisher who killed the private investigator who used to be the cop that knew that he had committed a murder. It's very like ornate. You're making it sound really convoluted, but this is probably a good point to tell people that we're assuming that you are also lifelong fans of Murder, She Wrote, or maybe you're new fans of Murder, She Wrote, but either way that you've seen the episodes and that it's more fun to talk about them than it is to keep the mystery of who done it after 40 years of these shows being on the air, maybe 35 years, right? So we will talk about the murderer. So if you haven't seen the episode, uh, definitely do that before you listen to us. That is a very good point. We have a, we'll just have to put a spoiler alert on every episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you will know who the murderer is by the end of this podcast. And so, as it turns out, Jessica, you know, confronts him. And then, in a little bit of a twist, like you expect, I mean, if you have watched many episodes, you would expect him to try to, you know, kill her because that's how many episodes end. But in fact, he's like, 
I would like to turn myself in, which is kind of nice. It's a nice way to begin the show. And which actually leads into the first thing I wanted to talk about, which is how well this episode sets up the established universe of Marty Sharoop, but also gives us a sort of softer side of Jessica, a more emotional side than we sometimes get in later episodes and later seasons, that we get this sense that she really does kind of have feelings for this guy, whose name I can't recall right offhand. But Preston Giles, of course, because he comes back in The Return of Preston Giles. That's right. So, you know, it's clear that, you know, she does have feelings for him and it really does break her heart to have to, you know, force his hand to confess his crime. So that's why you know, it's kind of an interesting way to start the series because we're told from the first few minutes of the episode, um, and we're talking about this as one episode, it's divided over two parts for syndicated reruns. But um, for the first few minutes, we're told that she is, you know, like this lonely retiree, widowed woman and we see her alone doing all of her stuff but also surrounded by friends but no romance right and then so much of the episode is about this obvious chemistry she has with Preston Giles and I think that's a really interesting way to start the series because romance is actually really scant throughout the rest of the series I mean, she has a few times that she kind of has flirtations or a possible love interest with someone but she always picks in the end to be alone so it, it's you you know you said how does this set up the textual universe um it's really interesting i would have expected there to be a lot more suitors for her if mm-hmm. i had only seen this episode and didn't know the rest of the series and i would expect that maybe at some point she would have like a long-term romance because it shows that she's definitely she's definitely heartbroken over frank's death uh and she struggles to think of herself with someone new but she's interested for sure mm-hmm. she's definitely interested and that's yeah. not something that happens, you know, in later episodes. Right. And one of the other things that I, I feel that just I need to talk about is just how charismatic Angela Lansbury is as an actress. Like, as a star, she is just tremendously charming. Like, she exudes a certain kind of warmth and generosity of spirit that I think is key to Jessica Fletcher's personality. And it's certainly one that Angela Lansbury has exhibited before this point, um, you know, as Mame, for example, or as uh, Evelyn, Eglantine Price and bedknobs and broomsticks but it's like this is sort of a testament to how skilled she is as a performer i mean this is a woman who has been in film and television and theater and it's i just i felt like i needed to say that at some point in this podcast and i'll gush about her repeatedly just because i think she deserves the accolades and the the adoration that she has among her devoted fans and i mean there are a lot of people whose introduction and most formative memories of her are through Murder, She Wrote. And there's a good reason for that. Not just because it was so, mm-hmm. you know, enormously popular, but also just because she is so good and so skilled in the role. Yeah. You know, I think um, I think she's wonderful throughout the series. But what struck me was how sort of different the character of Jessica is in this episode compared to future episodes. Mm. I mean, this episode, uh, there's kind of like um, a a campier vibe at times Mm -hmm. to her. Uh, Lots of exaggerated facial expressions. There's the whole like shtick with the train station, right? Mm -hmm. She's constantly showing up at the train station in Manhattan to make her way back to Cabot Cove and then something happens and she doesn't get on the train. I mean, it happens like four or five times throughout the episode. Um, She's just goofier, I think. And we do see that in a couple of the comedy episodes, but mostly I think what I remember about her and what I see in other episodes is just how like sort of mature and serene 
and gentle she is. And that's mm-hmm. what I love about Jessica. But this episode gave me a nice opportunity to appreciate a Jessica who's like goofy and quirky and, and charismatic in that way. Yeah. And, you know, she, there's, you know, there's some moments of physical comedy, like when they go to the office and then uh, what's her name almost ca- catches Ashley them. Ashley so like hiding in the, the, the closet, like, you know, her eyes are opening up with like wide, but it's just, again, that's so, you know, it's just a, a testament to Lansbury's skill as an actress that she can move so effortlessly between comedy and pathos and, you know, sleuthing. Like, I think that's really a testament to how skilled she is. Uh, but speaking, I mean, it's not as if she's alone in her skill, because uh, one of the things we were talking about in the pregame is just the embarrassment of riches that we have in terms of the cast. Like Brian Keith, who's well known to audiences by this point for any number of things, uh, both television and film related. We also have Burt Convy, of all people, the, you know, who's a game show host. We have some Golden Girls um cast as well as the woman who plays Truby, um, Dorothy's best friend. And Frances, who's very famous yes, in her Frances. own right and deserves her name said. Yeah. Who is yeah, who is Brian Keith's wife. I mean it's just and then Herb Edelman comes in as the Ned Beatty is the just, detective. Yes, it's truly like you could tell that CBS was pouring a shitload of money into this podcast or sorry, into this I wish they put it into this podcast. Into this episode. Hey CBS, <laughs> as, you if know, you want to throw some money our way, we'll take it. Yes, we certainly will. Make us a syndicated podcast on like Paramount Plus or something. You know, that's the dream. But, you know, it's clear that this is a project that CBS is pouring a lot of of their money into to make it work. And it's also reflective in, you know, the polish of the episode. Because one of the things that struck me as I was watching was like, wow, this is very surprisingly glossy production values for like you know network television like there's some interesting sound designs and there's a point where like the phone rings there's also like a clashing of uh dinnerware it's i don't know it's just really complex and well put together you think that's unusual for television i should say it would be it was unusual to me at least but i'll Uh, let you speak to it since you're the so i should i should explain to our lovely listeners that um, although I said I was in film studies and production, I'm a TV scholar by training. And so I will staunchly always defend the quality and reputation of television from any presumed malignment. Um, you know, you mentioned the telephone, Tej, and um, we, we talked about the train gimmick of how many times throughout the episode there's an emergency at the train station and Jessica has to rush away and can't get on the train. But it also struck me how significant the telephone is in this episode. Uh, mm-hmm. which came up again in a couple of later episodes. But the one of the first things we see is her running, and it's supposed to be 6.30 in the morning, and she runs back into the house because the phone is ringing, and, of course, she doesn't have an answering machine. She's assuming it must be a really important call um, if it's coming in so early. And, of course, it's Grady telling her she's going to be published. But that that device of, like, the phone ringing, uh, causing, causing issues and making people rush to answer it... Um, I think that is um, really indicative of the time period. And yep. it works in a way that I think in our cell phone culture, things don't because we just, mm-hmm. you don't have to run to catch a phone. Like if the phone, you can just listen to a voicemail or probably you just get a text. And there's something about that. Oh God, the phone is ringing. Hurry and answer it before the, before they hang up. That is just part of like the 80s murder mystery fun vibe, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because I think that one of the things that this series appeals now to both older millennials like my, you and myself um, and also to, you know, older audiences as well is that it is nostalgia in a way that, you know, it's kind of strange to think of 80s television now occupying nostalgia in a way that 
you know, because for us, we're used to like, you know, 50s and, and 60s and maybe 70s being nostalgia. But now things like Murder, She Wrote, which are 30, 35 years in the past, are coming to occupy that niche in part because of the aesthetics, but also because, as you say, like the technology is such that it just reminds us, for those of us who lived through the time, how differently our lives were structured and how differently our like everyday lived experience was shaped by technology in a way that it's not now. So I think we should talk about some of the things that are um, maybe less resonant for today's audience. Like I want to talk about the scene on the bus or rather when she gets Mm -hmm. off the bus, because this is a scene that, I mean, I've seen this episode dozens of times, but this, that's the scene that I remember most from childhood was that there is some episode of murder. She wrote where Jessica Fletcher gets off a bus in a bad neighborhood in New York Mm -hmm. and her life is in danger. Right. And I think throughout the eighties as a kid who grew up, not in New York. That was the narrative of what I knew of New York City. So what's happening is Jessica's following Ashley Vickers, um, trying to figure out if Ashley Vickers is involved in a real estate scheme. And she gets on a bus. She doesn't know where Ashley's going. She sees Ashley get off the bus, so she jumps off. And we cut to a close-up of the street signs telling us it's 3rd Avenue and 17th Street. Um, So this is not a bad neighborhood anymore uh but we see jessica walking by closed up shops it's everything's very dark the music is really ominous and then she's harassed by some street thugs uh with a knife notably not with guns she hits them with her purse because she's jb fletcher and she's a badass right (laughs) but that doesn't stop them they grab her and they carry her into an alley and it's really unclear what they're going to do to her in the alley uh, and then a guy who's followed her from the bus that we thought was the menacing guy turns up, takes them out, says that he read her book and likes her and was worried about her. Right. And I think it's worth noting that the guy who followed her from the bus is black. And so while she's on the bus, they keep cutting to him and giving us the sense that he's a threatening figure. But he turns out to be the savior. So immediately they're telling us that this is not a series that's going to trade on certain racial stereotypes. Right. Um, But it is a series that will trade on stereotypes of urban life. The idea that Mm -hmm. if you get off the bus in the wrong neighborhood in Manhattan, your life could be in danger because you're a bumpkin from Cabot Cove who doesn't understand the big city. Mm -hmm. What did you make of that, Tej? Yeah, I mean, that was well, first of all, when I was watching, I was like, wow, this episode is nuts. Like there are just so many moving pieces to this. I mean, which is understandable. It's basically like feature length. I mean, it's an hour and what, 45 minutes, basically, I said, give or take, you know, so that was my first impression, having watched this episode for the first time in a very long time. But it also strikes me that um, this whole sequence about this kind of thinly veiled hostility toward like big city life is reflected also in Jessica's kind of getting immersed in publicity culture, like, you know, where she's interviewed on the talk shows where, you know, she like everyone has their take on what she's doing. Like there's this snooty literature guy who's like well we entertain the masses or whatever pompous horrible thing that he says which is never making fun of her for writing mystery novels because they're mass mass entertainment and not literature and then she like pokes his balloon by saying like but you're on tv dude yeah she's like well tv's more your you know your province basically is what she says which is very funny but then you know people are reinterpreting it as being like some sort of feminist text but then there's also the cd like radio host who's recording studio is filled with cigarette smoke so there's this whole sense that you know new york city is both dangerous as you pointed out like like the the dangerous city streets of new york city but also it's the publicity culture and the kind of hot you know 
uh, what do I want to call it? Media frenzy. Uh, part of it is also something that's deeply alienating for a small town, JB Fletcher. Um, and so, you know, that's why she keeps retreating to the bus station because she just doesn't like New York City life and she just wants to get back to the simple life of Cabot Cove where she doesn't have to to do that. And ultimately, it proves that she's probably right since what she gets ensnared in a murder and then the man she's fallen in love with turns out to have, like, ruined people in the past and then killed two people, one of which was an innocent, basically an innocent bystander, but he justifies his action by being like, well, he was a bad person, so he died. You know, I killed him to deflect attention from me. <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, all of this just sort of justifies JB's hostility toward New York City life. I mean, I'd probably want to go back mm-hmm. to Cabot Cove too after all of that. Yeah, she repeatedly says she just wants to get home. Um, and then at the fifth time that she's at the train station at the very end, <laughs> she tells Grady she's never even writing another book. She's right. so traumatized by the whole experience that it's not worth it. Like, I would just want to go live my quiet life in Cabot Cove, which, of course, she doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. She's going to be a very famous novelist. And then later in the series, she even takes an apartment in New York. So she proves that she actually does understand urban life quite well. She's really street mm-hmm. savvy. Well, let's talk then about, since I alluded to it a little bit, let's talk about the actual like structure of the murder. Since, I mean, obviously the pleasures of Murdy Schroen aren't just about who's going to be guest starring this week or how what, what scrapes is Jessica going to get into, but also the kind of like weekly mystery mo- like model. So I was wondering if we could maybe talk a little bit about it because so much of Jessica's like uh, sleuthing ability relies on these chance moments or chance things that she overhears or slip ups that someone makes that she like then there's a happenstance that she sees something or hears something or reads something in the newspaper that triggers the memory and i just wonder if we could yeah, really talk that's a bit always about the, sort the of mechanics stick, of right usually mm-hmm. about 45 minutes into the episode she sees something or someone says something and she has the aha moment and then we get mm-hmm. the quirky little uh, music that tells us she's solved the murder right dun, dun, but usually dun, dun, she dun. has to prove it still yeah. Uh, so this and tells us that her like... powers of deduction are um, more significant than n- necessarily police skills, where police skills would be all about building a case based on evidence first, right? Her deductive mm-hmm. reasoning is what leads her to solve the murder, and then she has to worry about how to prove it afterward. Yeah, and I mean, you know, of course, this episode really nicely sets up the model of like the the bumbling and or hostile police chief or you know a detective who you know it thwarts jessica's efforts although you know in this case the police detective is not necessarily antagonistic but he is definitely not particularly skilled either He's bumbling um but he notably says like oh could you please come help me i've got more crimes to solve you know so it also establishes in the world of the series that um jessica will always work w- with law enforcement um which is kind of an interesting thing to watch in i think today's political climate Mm-hmm. Um, that this really oh, yeah. nice, That's wonderful lady, like she always works with law enforcement, right? Whether they hate her or love her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in that sense, she has a lot with obviously the the most important intertext with uh, J.B. Fletcher is Miss Marple of Agatha Christie. Like that's clearly the the model that Murder, She Wrote is building on, essentially, which is ironic since Angela Lansbury herself played Miss Marple, Marple once in The Mirror Cracked, the movie that came out just right before this show premiered. So it's, uh, you know, that's an also... Uh, a dynamic that emerges within the Miss Marple novels too is that Miss Marple has a sometimes complimentary but sometimes antagonistic relationship with law enforcement, which is always the sort of tension in these kinds of shows between you know the private detective or individual like or the um, 
the regular kind of resident, not that's not the way I'm like, you know, the regular citizen who solves crimes that the police can't. So there's always sort of a built-in, I don't want to say skepticism, but a sort of built-in dubiousness about how skilled police actually are at their work. She definitely feels Miss Marple-ish at times in this. I think the moments that stood out for me as mostly um, the sort of Margaret Rutherford Miss Marple is when she first meets Preston Giles and she tells mm-hmm. him his skin is really gray. And But yes, first she says, yes, do you yes. eat apples? Like out of nowhere. And he's like, what, yes, what the yes, fuck yes. are you talking about, lady? And she's like, your skin is gray. You need pectin. You need to eat apples. And the way that it's done, it feels very like Margaret Rutherford Miss Marple. So if you haven't seen... Um, any of the Miss Marple, the many media adaptations of the Miss Marple novels. Margaret Rutherford's were a series of movies in the 60s, and they're really high camp, Um, Mm -hmm. much different than even Angela Lansbury's own Miss Marple later. Um, There's also, though, I think moments where she feels more like, she felt like Aunt B to me. Um, I can see that, yeah. She was, it was when she was being interviewed on TV and she's a couple of times, you know, people are saying like, wow, you're you're this famous published author. And she has this moment where she's, oh, I never dreamed my book. And I just got this like Aunt B from the Andy Griffith show vibes like, uh-huh. oh, Andy, how could I ever, you know, like yep. I'm this sweet little old lady from a small town. I just bake pies like I never imagined this whole life happening. But I think that we also should remember that Levinson and Link, who created this show, were the creators of Columbo. Uh, And Columbo was a series in the 70s that, you know, was known for not being a whodunit. Murder, She Wrote is a whodunit. We don't necessarily know the murderer until the end. Um, But Columbo, we did know who the murderer was. And usually Columbo knew immediately, too. And so it was an hour and a half of him um, figuring out how to entrap the murderer. How is the murderer going to slip up, right? So like Mm -hmm. Jessica, he always used deductive reasoning over evidence usually. Uh, And I think we see that same kind of savvy in her, that she's really smart. She's actually the smartest person in the room. And what works is that people underestimate her. They always, she even mentions it a couple of times in this episode, and she definitely mentions it in later episodes, that people think she's a dotty old lady. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what that's how she's actually able to be so successful at catching murderers because she's underestimated. Yep. So there's your feminist text, right? Yep. I mean, (laughs) yeah. So there's a nice little bit of, you know, self-referentiality in the episode, Um, you know, because the irony, of course, is that, you know, this is elevating uh, Angela Lansbury in the same way that, like, you know, the inter the inter episode elevating of J.B. Fletcher. Yeah. Yeah. As a crime novelist. So it's well, really we quite should talk about why it's called the murder of Sherlock Holmes, right? I mean, it's it's a coincidence because at the costume party, which I think is like everyone's dream, right, is to be invited to some costume party where you come as your favorite character. And this is a total aside, but it was a, a costume party hosted by a publisher, a literary publisher, but almost everyone was dressed as a character from film and TV. So do with that what you will. But um, our victim is dressed as Sherlock Holmes, hence the name for the episode, you know, but I think there's something symbolic in that, that we're elevating Mm -hmm. J.B. Fletcher, the character, and Angela Lansbury as this new 1980s woman sleuth, and she's symbolically taking the place of Sherlock Holmes. He's being killed in favor of, like, a different breed of detective. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I, I like the idea. I like that idea quite a lot, actually. And it hadn't really occurred to me that that there was this, you know, f- sort of feminist reclamation of the mystery 
the murder mystery encoded within this episode. But I like that. That's really that's really a really good reading. Well, this is also when the cozy mystery in in print literature starts really taking off in the 80s and 90s um, and getting that label of cozy, right, which we see Mm -hmm. now is has totally exploded in literature and then also on media channels like Hallmark Movies and Mysteries. And the idea Mm -hmm, is it's mm -hmm. usually a woman sleuth. She's usually an amateur um, and she's usually smarter than the police. Um, And like in Murder, She Wrote, you know, it's all about bringing the killer to justice. So it's not really mm-hmm. about violence and gore. It's about right. restoring harmony and balance in the world, mm-hmm. which we see at the end. You'd mentioned that we think for a split second, Preston Giles maybe has the possibility to kill her once she knows he's the killer. And instead mm-hmm. he says he's going to confess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like that about the episode because it really heightens the stakes. Like, some, you know, given that we have so many murders <laughs> in its seasons, like in 12 seasons, this one is one of those that has a lot of stake involved because it's there's a stake involved for Jessica. Like that this moment when he has to confess and when she figures out, like, it's not just about restoring balance in the universe. It's that she has to really contend with this man that she has fallen in, has fallen in love with has killed two people like that's i mean it's a it's a heartbreaking moment you know because here's this widow who has you know still grappling with her her husband's death and then you know she's finally found someone who maybe can help her heal and then it turns out that he's you know a murderer like that's really kind of heartbreaking when you think about it and i think that that uh lansbury helps convey like just how wrenching and shattering this is for jessica to have this moment at, at the pool when she when all the pieces finally fall together. Oh yeah, and I think what works about the episode uh, and about the series in general is that we also see that it's gut wrenching for Preston. I mean, he he confesses that he's killed now two people, um, that he's committed crimes in the past, and that's what led to these murders. Um, but he's also obviously. Really cares about Jessica, and he's really heartbroken that he's disappointed her. Um, he's sad about the way things have turned out too. So he's a really human killer, right? He's mm-hmm. not, he's not more vicious than he needs to be, and he's definitely not heartless. And I think right. that's that's part of what makes the show such a success, right? Is that mm-hmm. we f- we feel there's good in the world. It promises us that even though there's going to be at least one murder every week, usually two. And they're still good in the world and we can find that uh-huh. good again by the end, right? Yeah. And I like, I mean, as I, I'll just tell our listeners who may not be familiar with my personal brand and my personal philosophy is that I'm an anti-cynic. I look for moments in pop culture that, get, like, as you say, like show us that there is good in the world and that it does shine through. That's one of the reasons I love something like Murder, She Wrote is because it's so anti-cynical. I mean, because nowadays, I mean, a lot of crime fiction is cynical to some degree but that's what i particularly enjoy about this show is that it is so i wouldn't say naive but there's a certain kind of innocence involved Mm -hmm. um, that that jessica is not naive or or you know she's not simple but she does have a good moral compass and she does have a kind of oh how do i want to put it she does have a kind of ingenuous way of looking at the world like she wants to believe that there there's good in everyone and that it's always kind of heartbreaking for her to realize particularly when it's you know someone that she's close to that ends up being the murderer like which happens several times throughout the series like that there's someone that she thinks very highly of that ends up letting her down and that that's so disappointing to her that she's perpetually like 
surprised at how capable people are of committing evil things. Yeah, and that she never loses her belief that there is good in the world, right? I mean, ultimately, Mm -hmm. this is a series of light, not a series of darkness. And so evil things happen. They happen for a terrible, terrible reason. That's not excusable, but they that's why they happen. There's a reason. It's not just wanton um, killing. Mm-hmm. And they're always brought to justice, which makes the universe restore its harmony. And I think the last thing we should say about how this episode shows us the world of Murder, She Wrote, is that it ends as all episodes for 12 seasons will, which is that our final moment is on Jessica smiling and laughing. Mm-hmm. And so we know that everything is now okay. Yes, I love that. I actually, I, you know, I, I obviously that it reads this kind of like, you know, kind of cliche, cheesy, for, <laughs> che- cheesy. Yes, it reads as cheesy for us in our more cynical television age that we currently live in. But I like the idea that there's that moment of because the fr- it always freezes too. Like you know, it that's does. the convention of like a lot of '80s television is like the freeze at the at the end. So there is that moment in which happiness is itself, you know solidified if you will i mean it's really hard i think for a contemporary audience because we would think about things like the trauma that these people have lived through and how much therapy you probably need after having these experiences (laughs) right Uh, and instead just it's five minutes later and jessica's laughing and that's how we end but (laughs) i think we do need to understand it in this sort of fictional world where it's promising us that you know there is good and that people can be happy again because justice Mm -hmm. has been achieved right Right. And that the right people have, you know, pay, have paid the price for their willingness to commit murder. So. So, yeah, I, I, I this is by the way, this is what happens when you have two trained film and media scholars like diving deep into the murder, sh- into television. So just so you know, this is going to be what it's like. <laughs> but this is to point out also that close reading and close analysis of shows can itself reveal new ways of taking pleasure in it and just sort of appreciating how sophisticated surprisingly perhaps for some more cynical viewers sophisticated even you know lowbrow forms such as the murder mystery can actually be you know when you really pay it close attention you can discover all sorts of things that eluded you at first well i think that's a pretty good place to end we've really uh did a deep dive if you will into this episode which is a nice pun considering there's a swimming pool involved so we'll end that here. Thank you for joining us for your favorite, soon-to-be favorite, Murder Street podcast, the Cabot Cove Gazette. So we will, of course, be joining you again next week when we will be discussing a lovely little family melodrama that comes ashore in Cabot Cove, which is where we sort of get our first deep dive into the um, the quirky happenings of Cabot Cove, Maine. So we thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. See you next time. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.